Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. I am so tired of holding this dead beaver. Well, don't jiggle it. There's some Cub Scouts walking past our diorama. I already forgot who we're supposed to be. We're 17th century Penobscot American Indians, part of the Wabanaki Confederacy. We spoke an Algonquin dialect. Were we considered Western Abenaki or Eastern Abenaki? Eastern. The curator went over this several times. How come I have to hold the dead beaver, but you get to be making the birch bark canoe? Yeah, you try squatting for six hours. How long before the fake human figurines are repaired? They're saying two more days. Oh, no, look at that stupid kid. He's totally got jelly all over his hand. Stay away from the glass, kid. And there it is. Purple handprint we have to look at for the rest of the day. He's pointing at something in here. He's pointing at you. He's showing his mom something. Beat it, kid. Is that a tattoo of Don Draper on your upper arm? Yeah. I really love Mad Men. Uh, The kid can see it. What? I thought the tunic would cover it. Put the dead beaver over it. He's looking away. Okay. One, two, three, now. He saw it. He's screaming that the Indians are moving. Oh, we have a situation here. You know, I'm just going to play this all the way out. Spawn of our white oppressors, we have returned to kill you and reclaim our lands. Okay, they're both screaming and crying now. Let's go get some coffee. Meanwhile, here's a show about the perilous plight of dioramas. And now he's currently appearing as an after-dinner peewee in the wintering shorebirds diorama. Colin McEnroe. We're going to talk in a lot of ways about dioramas today, but, you know, the kind of diorama you are hearing about right now is an especially, endangered might be the wrong word, but there are fewer and fewer uh, Native American dioramas, which used to be kind of a staple uh, of history and natural history museums. But uh, this is from an article in theappendix.net. Visitors and museum staff say that by displaying American Indian cultures alongside dinosaur fossils, gemstones, and taxidermied animals, dioramas make their subjects seem less than fully human, and because they depict a culture in a freeze-frame moment in time, often during the 17th century, around when many tribes first contacted Europeans, they make children think that all the American Indians are dead. But also what disappears with the people and the scenes behind the glass are other things. Dioramas are really, and this is just me talking now, but uh, it's a really powerful mode of introducing things to, to people. It's a, an opportunity to make people focus a lot on the details. When you're looking at a diorama, you, you can't help but engage with the scene. You don't walk by it. It's not like a painting. Uh, you look at everything that's in it. And there is that sense that you could almost step in to history at that moment. Um, uh, museums are, in the case of Native Americans, n- museums are having to solve this problem, figure out some other way to tell this story. But there are other, all kinds of, there are lots of other kinds of dioramas. They're old and they're new. Well, here's producer Jonathan McNichol to tell you more. I spend a lot of time thinking, wondering about the weird things we all do all the time and how they all became normal things that we all do all the time. Like, for instance, How did we decide it made sense to plant these big grass lawns and then cut them down whenever they actually grow? Or how did we figure out that kissing would be so much fun? Or, like, 
why do we think that toilet paper is a solution to, you know, that particular problem? Here's one that I've been thinking a lot about the last few days. Sometimes, when an animal dies, somebody will take the body, cut the guts out, fill it back up with straw and sawdust and packing peanuts or something, sew it up, pluck out its eyes and replace them with glass ones, arrange all its fur or feathers all perfectly, and mount it on a thing in as animated-looking a pose as possible. And then sometimes another person will come along and take the mounted animal carcass and arrange it in a scene of botanically accurate grasses and weeds and leaves and geologically appropriate sand and stones and put all of that in front of a beautiful, seamless mural background that someone else painted. And then they'll shut that all up behind glass. That's a bunch of weird stuff that a bunch of different people did to make a diorama, but that's not even the weird part, because you know what happens next? A bunch of other people come and stare at the diorama. That's the whole point. Whole elementary school field trips worth of people come and gawk at this stuffed dead animal with its glass eyes set up on a bed of arranged sand and painted leaves. How weird is that? But that's not even half as weird as dioramas get. In Torrington, Canada, there's an entire museum, the Gopher Hole Museum, made of various gopher dioramas. Gophers dressed as priests, gophers dressed as firemen, gophers dressed as beauticians. There are two separate museums on the planet, one in Croatia and one in Switzerland, filled entirely with frog dioramas. The one in Croatia is called Froggyland. There's the Jihad Museum in Afghanistan, which has a diorama of Soviets being beaten to death with shovels. There's a funeral home in Wisconsin that has a number of rodent dioramas. Squirrels playing basketball, cowboy chipmunks. They're there to lighten the mood for mourners. And there's a funeral home in Puerto Rico that makes life-size dioramas for viewing the dead. A 23-year-old boxer died. They propped him up in a boxing ring. A 22-year-old motorcycle enthusiast died. They dressed him in his gear and set him up on his Honda CBR 600. Of course, the uh, one of the salient and unchanging features of dioramas, I think, is that they're always quiet, right? They're silent. So that makes them uh, absolutely the wrong thing to do a radio show about, which is why we have to do a radio show about dioramas. I can also tell you, uh, Jonathan McNichol, from the choking laugh that came out of Michael Anderson, who's a preparator at Yale's Peabody Museum of Natural History in New Haven and is sitting here in the studio with me, that they don't use sawdust and or packing peanuts. Uh, that is not what they put inside the, the dead animals. We'll find out what they do. In just a second. In addition to Michael, uh, at the moment we have in the studios of WBEZ in Chicago, Emily Grassley. She's a chief curiosity correspondent, a job that does not exist in many places, uh, but it does at the Field Museum. And she's the writer and the host of the Brain Scoop on YouTube. If, you ha- if you're not watching these videos, you're not watching that channel, you are missing a lot. Uh, so they're going to start us off here a little bit later in the show. We'll talk to Lori Nix. Most photographers take photographs of things that are already in existence. But what Lori Nix and her collaborator do is build dioramas, take photos of those dioramas that are usually of sort of post-human scapes, I mean, uh, landscapes in which the human race has been wiped out a while ago. Uh, And then... (laughs) Then afterwards, they destroy the dioramas, uh, these painstakingly assembled dioramas. And then at the end, uh, Bruce Goldfarb uh, is the executive assistant to the chief medical examiner for the state of Maryland. We're going to talk about the nutshell uh, death scene dioramas. These are just absolutely legendary. It's an amazing story. These are small dioramas uh, created by a remarkable uh, woman uh, who will tell you all about. Uh, They are still used to train law enforcement people. Uh, They look at these dioramas of death scenes. 
in which painstakingly the death scene, a murder scene has been recreated, uh, and they uh, sharpen their forensic skills by trying to figure out what's going on inside that glass case. So we've got a lot uh, ahead of us, uh, and this is the, this is a really good topic. It seems like a crazy thing to do a show about, but it's not. Hey, Emily Grassley, I'm going to have you start off here because, okay, so the counter-narrative to dioramas are really weird, but they're really great, and we love them, and, and they're, they're just sort of the way we engage so frequently uh, all through our lives with things in museums. The counter-narrative is, well, in an age of televisions and computers and 1080pi resolution, and all the and virtual reality and God knows what else. You know the diorama. Is, is there still room for the diorama? Is there still a reason for museums to care about this? And, and I know that you do care about this. We'll be talking a little bit later about Project Hyena. But um, but what's the answer to that? Why still have dioramas? Oh, absolutely, they're still important. I mean, well, then you're also talking to like diorama's number one fan girl here. Um, but you know, I think we're really spoiled with all of the with all this technology and and the uh, accessibility of information. And you know, you can you we can't even imagine as a society any longer what it was like to not have you know an incredibly thorough Wikipedia. You know, like like we're just so spoiled with our ability to tap into any question that we have with this wonderful, you know, World Wide Web. Um, but but it wasn't always the case, and and dioramas were um, when they were um, when they were assembled and and conceived of, they were the um, entry point for education for people who could access the museum. Um, and and are are they still relevant in in spite of the fact that now you can literally Wikipedia or learn about almost anything online? Absolutely, for you know a number of reasons, including the the motivation um, which inspired people to create them in the first place. Um, and and it's it, I think it, we just need to focus a little bit more on that kind of uh, that notion. Um, I'm going to ask uh, um, Michael Anderson about this in just a second, but while I've got uh, your attention, Emily, one thing we also know about dioramas, particularly from watching some of your videos, we know these um, are labor-intensive things, and they were incredibly labor-intensive things. Uh, much of your work has to do with uh, documenting the work of a couple named Akeley, who would you know think nothing of spending four years right creating a four-season diorama of deer. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So... Um, so the Akeleys were pretty remarkable in that. And, and, uh, Carl Akeley and his wife, Delia, also kind of known as Mickey, um, they, they were some of the first people, I mean, Carl Akeley can, made the first habitat diorama. So he was kind of the, one of the first guys in, back in the 1890s to, uh, to try to reimagine not only what this animal looked like in life, but also the environment in which it lived. This was at a time when photography was not accessible to most people. We didn't have any kind of widely circulated media. Um, your options were through painting or through illustration that you'd actually be exposed to these environments and, you know, the life of a particular animal. And so they took it and they, they just ran with it. I mean, you talk about the Four Seasons at the Field Museum. This was when uh, they went out and there was a threat that the white-tailed deer was going to become extinct. This was a an actual threat. We kind of laugh about it now like, oh, man, there's so many deer. Can't imagine a time in which they would almost have gone extinct. But it, it was a real possibility. And so fundamentally, Akeley was a conservationist. You know, it seems counter uh, counterintuitive that you would go out and kill an animal in order to potentially save uh, a species 
kind of with the idea that um, if people could just be exposed to what this animal is and the habitat in which it lived, they'd have a greater appreciation about it, which is exactly what happened, not only with like the, the white-tailed deer in the Four Seasons, but also if you look at, you know, William Temple Hornaday from the Smithsonian, he was this, one of the Smithsonian's first taxidermists. He did the same thing with the American bison in the 1890s and came out to Montana territories, procured, you know, five or six of these individuals, and they were on display well into the 50s. And it was through those initiatives, like, you know, nobody living on the East Coast knew what a bison looked like. <laughs> um, and so this was their first exposure to it. And I think that messaging is still really important. Um, and you can, I mean, not to be a total downer, but you kind of start thinking about habitat loss and human impact. And yeah, right now we're kind of laughing at like the quirkiness that is dioramas, but give it 50 or 100 years and, and museum dioramas might be the only places where you can actually see the the physical remains of that animal in that habitat. Um, uh, the Ickleys are also, I think, the only couple ever to have their marriage broken up by a monkey. But you'll have to read uh, <laughs> Emily's blog to hear that story. We're not going to tell it to you right now, but it is true. You could read his autobiography. I mean, not his autobiography, but yes, this monkey, JT Jr., has his own biography <laughs> written by Delia Ickley. Yeah. It's a Roman Aklef. All right. So, um, Michael Anderson. So, we're, we're talking abstractly, or not abstractly, but we're talking... Uh, um, at one remove from dioramas, uh, you get there down and dirty and make uh, dioramas. You're what's called a preparator. What, first, what does a preparator do? Well, I am in charge of the uh, museum dioramas at the Peabody Museum. We have 12 um, dioramas. Um, eight of them are painted by James Perry Wilson and the other four are by um, Francis Lee Jaquies. And those are two of the superstars of, of um, diorama um, construction painting. And, and when? in what period did they work? Well, uh, Wilson was the first. He was there in uh, 1944 and continued working. Um, he, he finished three dioramas in the uh, 1940s and then came back after reti- he retired from the American Museum in New York in uh, 1956 and worked till 1963. Mm. And Francis Lee Jaquies was there in the early 50s. Mm. So um, those, that's basically the time period of our dioramas. Uh, we just got a new diorama. I was able to p- procure one from the um, Canadian Museum of Science that James Perry Wilson had painted, and the Canadian Museum of Science had put it in storage, and I was able to uh, get that for permanent um, display at the Peabody Museum. And what's, then, what's it a diorama of? It's uh, Point Pelee uh, Warbler Migration, and it came without a foreground, so I built the foreground for it. So explain what a foreground would be in a situation like that. Well, um so habitat dioramas are what people associate natural history museums with, and they're, they're a painted background with usually with taxidermied animals and fabricated um, plants, plant material. In this case, it was a sand dune, and I had to make flowers, and I had to make um, uh, a yew plant and some various, um, various things like that. Um, also, in this case... Um, we did we did have some taxidermy that I was able to put in. I did do some taxidermy, but I also carved birds and mm. so I'm um working on on sculpting models of birds, painting them realistically and they they fit in pretty seamlessly. So I want to talk about foregrounds again for a second because this is something, I mean, back to Emily's point about the Akeleys and like how long this could take, right? I think Mrs. Akeley would make these leaves, you know, thousands and thousands of leaves. I mean, once you commit to a foreground that has foliage in it, you could be talking about a lot of work. 
Yep. Um, <laughs> I uh, had to replace a, a red osier uh, shrub in one of our dioramas, and I, it took me off and on a couple of years to do mm-hmm. uh, with another couple of volunteers. So off, it takes and a long time. It, like how many leaves did you have? Did you have to make lots of little leaves or something? Was yeah, that... this was about maybe a thousand leaves, and um, <laughs> yeah, and we we vacuformed them, and and um, I started a new process where I'm actually photographing leaves, making two part molds, and embedding them in five minute epoxy, which gives you a very beautiful leaf without even having to paint it, mm. and it's um, translucent and it's um, much nicer than the vacuformed. Yeah. But, it, takes a long time. And uh, Emily, do we know how the uh, Mrs. Akeley made all those leaves? Did she? What did she yeah. do? Yeah, a similar process. Um, um, from from what that sounds like, it's, there are seventeen thousand leaves in the in the Four Seasons dioramas. So, um, I think she caught a break with winter. Didn't have to make a lot of <laughs> leaves in that scene, but. Uh, she would. She poured every single leaf uh, uh, into a mold. Uh, it was a wax wax mold, and then she would paint every single one of them and affix them and put wires in them. And I mean, like, so so uh, Jay Kirk wrote the book Kingdom Under Glass, and there's this really great recreation. He, he kind of recreates the scene of, of her sitting in her studio with the hot dri- wax dripping and what it must have been like. And she didn't know where Carl Akeley was. And was he on an expedition? Was he dead? You know, and here she is just with her 17,000 leaves. I mean, that's dedication. Like we, I don't, I can't remember the last time I ever spent that amount of time on anything. <laughs> I can guarantee you that you haven't ever spent that amount of time yeah, on, no. on anything. So um, maybe on Twitter, I've spent that that much time yeah, on maybe, Twitter. That's maybe. it. Uh, so um, Michael Anderson, it seems to me that dioramas are they're fighting a battle, right? They're fighting a battle against time, entropy. You know, I mean things. Things crumble, things get old, air gets in where it's, and moisture gets in where it's not supposed to get. So I assume a lot of your work is sort of the work of keeping the dioramas from falling apart or decaying or degenerating. That's true. And luckily, our museum is very committed to our dioramas. So they are putting um, a priority on their restoration and their care. Um, and I've basically been taken off um, all the temporary display work now to work on the on the dioramas and our Connecticut Bird Hall, which is a, a taxonomic um, lineup of Connecticut birds. Um, do you have a, a way that you explain to people why a diorama is special, why it's this, it's superior to a dozen other ways that we might try to introduce somebody to a natural scene or a natural history? Well, you know, I I came in in 1980 at the American Museum in New York, and I came in as a snotty art student, and I and I came and I looked at those dioramas, and I said, God, that's weird, but I I couldn't get away from them, and I just couldn't get away from that illusion, and I stood there dumbfounded, and I think that's important. I think it's important that it's a different way of of learning. You you stand in front of those dioramas with your jaw open. And the information comes to you by osmosis, and mm-hmm. it and when you get it, it's deep. It's a deep kind of learning. Um, there's a whole um, new um, field called contemplative pedagogy that, that uh, academics are actually starting to look into, and it, I believe that's what the dioramas embody. 
Contemplative pedagogy. There you go. I like that idea. You like it? All right. So, um, and Emily, you know, a couple of years ago, I was up in New Hampshire. I was at a New Year's Eve party, and there was a guy there who'd been working for I don't know how many years on a book about liminality. Uh, and I was like the only person at the party who a wanted to talk to him and b knew right away what he was talking about liminality, being that notion of being on the threshold of something. And it seems to me that dioramas are a great example of liminality. They're not virtual reality. You're not going to put goggles on and walk around and pet the deer or interact with you know whatever is inside the case. You're not doing that, but you're also not um, removed from it the way that you would be with other kinds of exhibits that you just, you know, were, were looking at a painting or, or any of the other ways that, uh, that there's a way that you're standing right on the threshold of something. You could almost step into it, but you're not allowed to. Does that make any sense? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think what kind of what you're getting at, I, I imagine the first time I walked in front of the moose diorama uh, at the Field Museum, I mean, unless you're standing right there next to a moose, you never really get the sense of scale. And then so you walk up to it and there's this huge bull moose. I mean, it's probably 10, 11 feet at the head and with this huge um, rack of antlers. And, you know, then you have this little nuclear family scene and the rest of it. But you stand there and you're just like, oh, my God, these animals live all over North America. This is crazy. And like this, is, these are these are individual animals. Yes, these are dead moose. They have been kind of reanimated one thing, but they're more than that. They're representations of all of this wildlife and all of this biodiversity. And then you're standing in front of this thing and you start to kind of have this existential moment. You're like, oh, my gosh, I'm part of something way larger than myself. I never I never spent so much time thinking about leaves or the environment in which these animals would live. And all of a sudden I have a greater understanding and appreciation of how how wild they are and how unlikely this is all becoming. And I mean, like that happens, you know, time and time again, standing in front of these things. And it's you can't replicate that in a zoo. You'll never get that close to an animal to put yourself in the perspective of that creature. Uh, you will probably only get that moment in a moment of terror if you run into <laughs> one of them in the wild. Um, you don't want to run into a bull moose in the wild no, that, or, that is or not, a cow. That's, that's not contemplative pedagogy uh, if you actually no, run into no, the that's, actual that's, moose. That's panic. You know, that's like, ah, I'd appreciate this animal if I wasn't so scared. Right. Um, and so it really is this moment where you're at peace and you can come and you can a- approach this unapproachable creature and have that kind of interaction. It's amazing. Um, and, and you start to notice things about it that you wouldn't well, you wouldn't see in an illustration. You wouldn't gather from a photograph. It really is quite remarkable. Um, Michael, I, I, this may not be exactly your field at, at the Peabody or maybe not going on at the Peabody, but I would imagine that in dioramas that attempt to depict dinosaurs would have to be updated, right? I mean, there's like this whole new idea about what dinosaurs look like. Well, um, the closest I can get to is our Age of Reptiles um, mural mm-hmm. painted by Rudy Zallinger back in the 1940s. And indeed, it is quite out of date, and there's a whole... Um, there's a whole um, lecture panel that talks about how every the science has been uh, renewed over time. Mm-hmm. Um, with the dioramas, you have something different, which is you have extinction. Mm-hmm. We have extirpation and uh, extinction where those, it, those organisms and those um, plants don't exist any longer. Mm-hmm. And so they are, like you said before, they're, they're moments of time. And they capture that, but then you can use those to teach how the habitat has changed, ecology has mm-hmm. um, brought that about, and human um, impact has made things 
removed and, mm. and gone. So, uh, Emily Grassley, there aren't many new diorama projects, um, but you're kind of spearheading one of them, and it's not an entirely new uh, project. This is um, <laughs> this is diorama space that was uncovered behind a wall uh, at the field, and so it was kind of like, you know, your diorama in this space, as they say. So explain what you decided to do, or somebody decided to do. Yeah, so so when I first started at the Field Museum, I was having a meeting with a, a director of exhibitions, a fellow named Yop, and uh, he, I have this new YouTube show right at the Field Museum. What are we going to do with it? What's one thing that we can accomplish? And I was asking him about things happening in, in exhibitions and kind of untold stories, and he mentioned to me that in our Hall of Asian Mammals, there are 20 di- diorama alcoves, and only 19 of them were finished, and the last one was kind of boarded up sometime in the 1930s, um, and painted over. They slapped a big map of Asia on it and kind of walked away. And um, we can't exactly figure out why or how. Um, it, it, you know, a collective thought of like, well, you know, World War II was a big, um, you know, obviously priority and, and, and used a ton of resources that should have gone to the war effort and not museums and, um, you know, Great Depression era type things, and we didn't have enough funding, and then public favor kind of fell out. So other priorities came up. It's all it's all speculation. We don't really know. Um, and so nobody ever raised the money to do anything about it because still for decades it was like, well, we have enough dioramas, or we don't really need to finish it. Um, we never really had the funding. So um, I also heard about four striped hyenas that we have. Um, prepared by Carl Akeley on the first American museum-led expedition to Africa, to Somalia, in the 1890s. And this, again, was one of Akeley's conservation missions. And he went down there um, kind of uh, with the impression that a lot of these ungulates were becoming extinct from a virus that was introduced by the Italians um, that was infecting uh, the local fauna um, introduced from their their livestock, the Italians' livestock. So, So the... Scientists at the Field Museum heard about this. They headed this huge expedition, and on that expedition procured a number of animals, including these four-striped hyenas. So the the hyenas themselves have this great history. And um, again, they were brought to the Field Museum, prepared, and then kind of shuffled down to the Asia or the uh, reptile hall. So when you're in the reptile hall, you're looking around, and it's like Komodo dragon. Here's a mural of tadpoles, and then four striped hyenas. You know they're pretty out of context. So we we put these two things together, and and the Brain Scoop has a, a fairly wide digital audience, and more importantly than that, it, it's a community of really impassioned natural history lovers. So people who love museums, um, and they love what we're trying to do. So so they we uh, posed it to them, you know, help us build this diorama, help us move these four-striped hyenas into this um, previously unfinished diorama space, and we'll document the process. And um, we'll be one of those institutions that gets to create a brand new diorama. And we did it. I mean, we raised 91% of the money through Indiegogo over a period of six weeks last spring. And uh, just this morning, I was down in the exhibition space talking to Aaron Delahanty, who's our um, uh, staff artist, and he was busy working on the mural. I mean, it's all coming together. It's so it took my breath away. You know, it, it's it's really something else. Yeah, and it's it's great news for those poor hyenas uh, who've been sitting yeah. in the reptile room going. WTF? Why are we in <laughs> Reptile Room? All right. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, we'll have Michael and Emily back. Uh, we're, uh, next, we're going to talk to uh, Lori Nix. Uh, and uh, we have all, all kinds of surprises for you. Just stay with us.
All right. We're doing a show about dioramas because because we're the only show that would do a show about dioramas. People don't talk about dioramas on the radio. They don't make good radio because they're so quiet, those dioramas. All right. So uh, with me in studio is Michael Anderson. He is a preparator for Yale's Peabody Museum of Natural History in New Haven. Emily Grassley writes and hosts The Brain Scoop on YouTube. Uh, she's uh, with the Field Museum. Uh, in, uh, in She's joining us from the studios of WBEZ, also in Chicago. Uh, joining us now also is Lori Nix. She's an award-winning photographer and sculptor. Uh, after we're through talking to her, you're going and want to know more, so you're going to go to laurienix.net. That's L-O-R-I-N-I-X.net. Um, who's using dioramas in a very different way? Uh, and well, first of all, welcome to the show, Laurie Nix. Hey, thank you for having me on. So, dioramas, uh, as we have been discussing them so far, are almost exclusively about preserving something that was, um, and sort of stopping time somewhere in the past, and allowing people to look at something that was alive interacting with its own natural environment. You're doing something very different. And I might add, photography usually is about taking pictures of things that are already there. Uh, what you're doing as a photographer is uh, very different. You're creating something uh, that wasn't uh, and taking pictures of it. And you're doing it in the diorama form. So tell people what it is that you do create uh, as a diorama in order to photograph it. Oh, sure. So I actually build these in my Brooklyn apartment with my partner, Kathleen Gerber. And for the last 10 years... We have been building architectural interiors of a future that could be. So I'm making interiors of libraries, museums, um, science centers with the idea that mankind has been eradicated. We've done something to uh, move ourselves off the face of, the, of, of Earth. And so I'm being this photographer. I'm the last person alive in the city, and I get to go throughout the city and look and see how things are um, progressing over time. So you've got a library that has moss growing on the walls and, and birch trees growing up through the floor. Yeah. You've got a subway car rusted uh, and filled with sand. Uh, you've got uh, so evidence that, that mankind has been, uh, to use Michael's words, uh, extirpated. Uh, people aren't there anymore. This is what it's all going to look like. So, But dioramas ordinarily are created to stay as long as possible and for people to look at the dioramas. You're not creating these dioramas for anybody to look at. You're just creating them to photograph them, right? Right. We uh, spend about seven months to create a scene. Mm -hmm. I take about a week to photograph it. And then once I have the photographic image, I dismantle these guys, throw away some parts, recycle whatever I can, and move on to the next the next scene. That's so Tibetan sand man mandala. <laughs> there must be great weeping uh, as you do this. I mean, yeah, well, and I one thing I wanted to ask you about, and um, I'll ask it now before I forget it. So your collaborator, uh, Kathleen Gerber, who helps you build these things, am I correct? I think I might have seen in a video that she had some kind of background working, and this is a part of dioramas that we're not going to talk about today, but didn't she work in store environments? I mean, in some ways, the old, incredibly ornate store window you know, that people really used to lavish. I'm sure Marshall Fields in Chicago uh, did. Those were like dioramas, right? Right. She, she um, worked for a long time um, for a company that made store fixtures like uh, wallpaper for Victoria's Secrets and big gilded um, mirrors for, for Victoria's Secrets. So she comes from the background of faux finishing but actually has a degree in glass and glass blowing. Mm. 
So I'm sure you're asked this all the time. Why were you attracted to, uh, not attracted to a genre, but attracted to really invent a genre that previously didn't exist? I mean, there just isn't a photography of post-apocalyptic or (laughs) post-human diorama genre. You are that genre. How did that come to be? It's from my childhood growing up in the rural western Kansas. Every season I experienced a new disaster, a new problem with Mother Nature. So if you grow up worrying about tornadoes and blizzards and floods, the idea of danger and disaster is already in me. I'm already interested in it. And I also come from um, watching 1970s uh, dystopian cinema. So I grew up on a heavy dose of Planet of the Apes and Logan's Run. And I started building dioramas because of the kind of photographer that I'm not. I tried my hand at photojournalism, and I was awful at it. And I'm not much of a portrait photographer. So photographing people for a living just isn't in me. But sitting in my apartment and bringing these environments to myself rather than going out and traveling in search of them is more a natural way for me to uh, create photography. Now, there's one thing that it's going to run through all of our conversations. I, I think it's there uh, for Michael, although I'll come back to him and ask him this in just a second, and it certainly is there in Emily's descri- descriptions uh, of the Akeleys, and it'll be there when, in our final segment when we're talking uh, about the nutshell uh, crime scenes. And there's an obsessiveness to people who do this. I mean, there's just a level of obsessiveness about detail and a willingness to spend a lot of time on what to many others might seem a rather unrewarding pursuit suit or, or maybe just too much meticulousness um, that, that I think runs through everybody who's working in this field and it does with you. For example, exp- <laughs> I'm sorry to be laughing, but explain the Chinese restaurant thing where you had to make the food for the photo. Explain that. Okay. So we decided to, to uh, make a diorama of the Chinese restaurant in our neighborhood. And I chose the Chinese restaurant because every time I go in, it feels like the end of the world. There's greasy, um, bulletproof plaques separating me from uh, the person taking my order. And in order to get the place to look the way I wanted it to, Kathleen sculpted miniature plates of Chinese food. Rather than going out and just buying Chinese food and putting it on a plate, we made little miniature images of it so that we could photograph it to then create the Chinese menu board. So that would strike, I mean, in other words, what you're doing is creating something completely unreal. You're creating this post-human landscape. Um, uh, and and so it would seem like a place where you could cut some corners. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't you cut corners? Why why the insistence on doing something that, that has such a strong through line? Oh, our, our motto is um, work harder, not smarter. It would have been so much easier to grab things off the Internet and just place them in the scenes, either through Photoshop or the, you know, just printing out something. But that's just not the way we are. We actually try to be as authentic as we can, even though we're making something completely fake, like a diorama. So let me just go swing back to our other guest for a second. So, Michael, this is something that you, I don't know if you're struggling with it or not, but I mean, I don't know, what, and I don't know if there's some huge code for diorama preparators, you know, that explains all the rules. But you said uh, earlier that you're carving some birds and you're creating birds rather than doing taxidermy birds in some cases. So that's an interesting question. Like, what are the rules? Well, the rules are, are dictated by... Um, the ornithologists. So mm-hmm. I have to pass these through the the science people. Mm-hmm. And so 
The wing cords have to be exactly measured to match the wing cords of the actual birds. Um, the, the, end, the tip of the wing to the tail has to be right. The, the beaks are cast so that, you know, these are warblers. These are tiny little, you know, three millimeter beaks and um, glass eyes. And, and so it's, um, there is some theater there. I mean, glass eyes are a theater, but, um, but the actual um, carving is, it's like a scientific illustration in 3D. It's very, as accurate as I can make it. And, you know, Emily, one wonders, you know, looking at the future of all this, um, I mean, 3D printers can do almost anything or will be able to do almost anything. Um, I'm wondering about, I don't know whether the field with the hyena project, whether you solved any of the usual diorama problems in unusual ways, but it feels as though technology might be really helpful in in enhancing and, and creating some ease with this otherwise kind of retro curatorial activity. Yeah, I mean, there are some really exciting ways that we are using technology um, for this diorama, but maybe not in the way you would think. You know, so we now uh, we partnered up with Adler Planetarium, you know, right down the road where they have um, a scientist there who uses a program that can pull up the star map and sky chart of what the what the um, what the sky would have looked like at any point in time, 1000 years in the past or 1000 years in the future. So what they did was they asked him to pull up the star chart for what the morning of August 6th, 1896 looked like 40 minutes before sunrise if you're looking slightly northwest. <laughs> and that is that is the constellation pattern and eclipse of the moon that is painted in the background of this diorama. So, I mean, that that's the attention of detail that we're going to. So it's, we are using technology and these new things in the, to better inform our understanding of what the most accurate representation of what that area of Somaliland um, would have looked like when those hyenas were uh, originally collected. But as far as using things like 3D printers, you know, we're not sure because we want this thing to last. So we're using the techniques that we know um, have the best longevity. So we don't want to use any kind of plastic or any kind of chemical that's going to off gas. We don't want to use anything that's going to otherwise impair the integrity of the specimens um, or that's going to have a negative uh, impact. You know, we we just don't know with some of these materials they use whether or not they will hold up for 50 or 100 or 200 years. Because that's the point, is that this thing will still be here long after I am dead. (laughs) Okay, Lori Nix, um, listening to all that, I feel like as an artist, you have this sort of no pain, no gain attitude. Like if I could give you a 3D printer where you and your collaborator could just type in what you want, you know, I want a fox that's this size, blah, 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 and it would just print it right out. I feel like that wouldn't interest you that much. Like you guys want to suffer somehow. Yeah, I mean, not really. Um, I actually do have one of those MakerBot uh, 3D printers, but I've barely taken it out of the box because... I could spend hours trying to figure out how to either model a fox in 3D and then a couple more hours printing it, or we could just sit at our table, pull out our our polymer clay, and just sculpt one. And just working with our hands is much more interesting than sitting at a computer on a keyboard typing. Um, One last question. I mean, uh, the the way that your job is very different from uh, Michael's and and from the people that Emily interacts with is that, I mean, they want things to be good and nice and you you want things to be broken right i mean not only do you have to make things but they have to look incredibly broken and decayed and deteriorated things have to be crumbling so do you make them crumbled or do you make them and then crumble them i actually make them and then step away and kathleen crumbles them (laughs) (laughs) usually when i'm gone yeah so you you have a you have a designated crumbler absolutely 
And are there like a lot of special techniques for that? I suppose, I suppose every time you have to crumble something, you have to invent a new method of crumbling it. It's it's more like you know just attacking it with certain types of tools. Very old fashioned. <laughs> All right. Well, people should look at more of Lori Nix's work. As I say, LoriNix dot net. That's L O R N I L O R I N I X dot net. And we will put stuff stuff up on the WNPR dot org website about this. Uh, I've got Michael and Emily with me. Uh, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to tell you about the nutshell unexplained crime scenes. This diorama shows early 21st century radio producers making the show. That's Jonathan McNichol on the left and me, Kion Wolf, on the right. In the bird diorama, we see Eastern Connecticut nut-scratching tweeter Greg Hill, who also appeared in the intro. And here in this case is a North American intern, Nate Gagnon. This is a new exhibit. It shows the actor Johnny Depp at his makeup mirror preparing to play the part of Bill Curry. For show pages, articles, and a diorama showing little bitty teeny tiny eensy peensy figurines of the here and now staff, visit our website wnpr.org slash Colin. And now, back to Colin. All right, we've got one more type of diorama to tell you about, and then uh, Michael and Emily will also help me uh, wrap this uh, topic up here. But So um, when we started doing this, I mean, there's so many kinds of dioramas that we could talk about, so many specific dioramas. I would uh, um, urge you... Uh, to, if you want to get a, an even broader sampling, go to our friends at Atlas Obscura. They have an entire category at the Atlas Obscura website called Dioramas, uh, where they've just found very interesting dioramas all over the world. Uh, and one of the ones featured there is one of the ones that we're going to talk about right now, uh, because you just can't you can't do this show and not talk about this. Uh, it's such a, an amazing story, uh, and the thing itself is amazing, and then the way that it came to be uh, is an, uh, is also amazing. These are are the so-called nutshell uh, dioramas of unexplained deaths. Uh, they reside now in Maryland. We're going to tell you why to help us do that. Uh, Bruce Goldfarb uh, from the chief from the office of the chief medical examiner, examiner for the state uh, of Maryland. Bruce Goldfarb, welcome to our conversation about dioramas. Hi, Colin. Uh, real nice to talk with you today. So we're going to talk about these nutshell studies of, of unexplained death. Uh, but first, we have to talk about the w- reason they exist, and that is this remarkable woman, Frances Glessner Lee. Uh, this is a woman who was born in the uh, latter years of the 19th century uh, and wanted to be more than her family would let her be, right? This was a time when she was born into a very wealthy family, uh, and wealthy young women were not really expected to do much of anything, including go to college. Uh, she was sort of held back. But Bruce Goldfarb, what did she want to do? I think that uh, ha- she, I think, would have liked to have been a doctor or a nurse um, and didn't have the means on her own to be able to go to college. So uh, she was uh, very well educated, homeschooled, tutored, as it were, um, you know, and was very well read, uh, uh, skilled in music and art and traveled Europe and, you know, was very worldly, but didn't have the uh, formal higher education. So, um, you know, that is true. And then somehow or other, through a family friend, she became aware of the fact that crime scenes back in her day often were not very well maintained or handled or policed at the time of the murder, right? You had police just walking around doing all kinds of stuff that we would consider pretty stupid right now. 
that's true and and there was very little you know she was uh she became interested in in um uh in death investigation through uh a friend of her brother <clears throat> dr george burgess mcgrath who was a pioneering medical examiner and regarded as the sherlock holmes of america and uh, he was a family visitor and, and spent a lot of time and told her stories of cases he's working on. And she was really quite fascinated with it and wanted to do something to help, to help the profession. And uh, she gave uh, a good chunk of money, uh, millions in uh, 2015 money, um, to establish the country's first program in uh, legal medicine at Harvard University. And from that, and we're going to sort of have to jump forward just to cover this all in the time that we have, did come these dioramas, these dioramas that were of crime scenes. Uh, they're built, uh, I think, on sort of a one, in, one inch equals one foot scale. Right. And right. These, these are her recreations uh, of specific crime scenes that could be studied by people seeking to learn forensics. Um, so right. Were these, these were actual crimes uh, that had been committed, Bruce? They are. They're all based on actual cases. And, and aside from doing the program at Harvard, she also uh, established a, this a homicide seminar to train police officers. And so uh, she began that. This is actually the 70th anniversary. It began in 1945. And um, uh, bringing everybody, everybody you know, these officers together to teach them about uh, the medical aspects of death investigation. And she thought it wouldn't be great to be able to take everybody to a real crime scene and use that as a practice, which you can't do. So the next best thing was to make little crime scenes for them to use uh, for practice, for study. So which is what they are. Yeah. And so then so the thread that I said that's running through all this, every conversation that we have is obsessiveness. In order to do this, you've got to be kind of obsessive. Now, th- these little tiny, well, they're not little tiny, but these small boxes, they're like Cornell boxes, but they they show these actual murders often these blood spattered, blood soaked right. sc- scenes. I mean, the light switches work, the roller blinds work. There's a sewing machine that's about like a, a, an inch and a quarter high and the needle is threaded. And sh- she did all this stuff, right? Yes, she did. She, well, for one, I think it was because of the craft itself. Uh, miniatures were taken much more seriously back in the day. And, uh, you know, she did have the means to do things. If you're going to do something, you don't do it halfway. Uh, you do it the right way, which is what she did. But she also, she really felt very strongly that uh, the, the, uh, they had to be accurate and realistic to the finest detail uh, because if anything detracted from it, um, if it, they didn't, she didn't want police officers to think they're a child's toy. So they had to be taken seriously. And so she filled them with minute detail uh, to, uh, so, it's, so you can suspend disbelief and you get, it's really very immersive. Um, and that was, that was important. That was key to it. Yeah, there's um, I, I, there's one of them. I think there's a full ashtray, and she made all these little tiny cigarettes, lit them, and stubbed them out. Right? She did. They actually have tobacco in them too. They're they're minuscule, amazingly small. And and how effective are they at training police? I know they're still used. Harvard had them. Then Harvard, uh, I think, endowments ran out, and your office wound up uh, moving them up there and continuing continuing to allow police to train on these things. Right. Are, once again, it's sort of the question I asked Emily earlier. It just feels like in 2015 there must be some easier way or less retro way to do this. But you still maintain that they're effective in, in training police. Well, absolutely. Um, you know, they, they really do. First of all, it couldn't be done by any other medium. You couldn't do it by film or photography. I don't even think that 3D rendering, uh, you know, computer simulation today would, would be as, uh, as good. Uh, I don't think you could get it that detailed. Um, the, 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 the facts of violent death are, are really unfortunately timeless, and very little has changed in that way. 
so uh, there's nothing about them um, that that becomes dated. Um, I mean, it's you know, death is death, and and um, um, so in, in terms of a tool, um, they are uh, as useful today as they were when they were created. You know, I, I asked Laurie Nix about that whole business of making something in order to crumble it, crumple it, make it uh, decay. Um, this is something that she had to do at least once, right? She she had a, a, a basically an arson murder, a cabin in the woods. Explain she what she, explain what she did with that. Well, you have to realize that each one of these models cost what it cost to build a real house, and it took that long to make too. They were made using authentic uh, methods, so everything's framed. And she actually she built a house and then and burned it in order to uh, recreate this uh, the scene. So you know she literally had money to burn. Uh, she she did not care what things cost. She spared no expense on these things, nor and you know no detail was overlooked either. Um, are these ever things ever viewable by the non-policing public? That's that's a hard one to answer. Sort of in a gray area, uh, you know. Uh, we we try to accommodate people as we can, mm-hmm. but you know we don't promote them, we don't advertise them, we don't encourage people to to visit them. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, I do understand that there are they they are well known mm-hmm. among the uh, miniatures community, and <laughs> and uh, you know certainly we are proud of uh, Frances Glesner Lee and her right. contribution. So it's understandable that. Call first is what we're really saying here, right? Yeah, call, you, should, you should phone and uh, see if you can make an appointment. Uh, Bruce Goldfarb, thank you so much for your time. Really quickly, we had 15 seconds left for each one of you. Michael Anderson, wh- what's the best thing to go look at uh, among the dioramas of the Yale Peabody? What are you in love with right now? Um, the Shoreline Diorama, which is a 40-foot-long um, site. It's a site-specific diorama at the Peabody. You can stand there and you can actually feel like you can breathe the marsh air. It's beautiful. All right. And Emily, you got 15 seconds. What's the best thing in the field right now? Well, after January 26th, you should certainly come and check out the striped hyenas. Oh, but other than there. that, come come check out the uh, the bison uh, diorama in the North American Hall of Mammals. It's spectacular. All right. Emily Grassley, thanks so much. Michael Anderson, Lori Nix, Bruce Goldfarb. Special thanks to Jonathan McNichol, who produced this. Diorama. You know, I think it's kind of cool. In this diorama, that's what this place looked like 2,000 years ago. Wait, wait, wait. What if those guys in there are real life and we're in the diorama and, and they're watching us? And <laughs> Check out that squirrel's nuts over there. <laughs>